In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Will all the kids and teens up through the 10th grade please come forward? How are you two today? Good. What do you think the others are? Labor Day. Maybe they're out of town traveling, huh? Maybe they're asleep. They might be asleep. You're right, they might be. Have you ever used a thermometer? What, what do you use it for? Your temperature? Put it in your mouth? Okay, we won't go any further then. Sometimes, sometimes even under your arm, right? Yes. You've ever seen that? Yeah, to measure the heat or cold on the body or outside. So there's different kinds of thermometers, aren't there? You can tell how hot or cold it is outside. If you have a thermometer outside, if you have a thermometer in your mouth, you can tell how hot or cold your body is, right? So you can measure, you can measure how, how hot something is. You ever heard a cricket? You ever hear a cricket at night or anything making noises? Chirps, kind of. You know what they do? You used to. You know what they do? They're, they're rubbing their forewings together, aren't they? They're rubbing their forewings together. And you might not believe this, but they say this is true. Uh, on a hot summer night, if you hear a cricket chirping, make, rubbing his forewings together, count the number of chirps count to 15 and count the number of chirps and add 40 and that will give you the temperature outside the higher the temperature the more chirps there will be you have you ever done that before no they say it's true i don't know if that's true or not but they say it's true well you know what god created crickets there's all kinds of wonderful things that that are out there that we just don't have any control over Try it and see. I'm going to try it next time I hear a cricket, okay, chirping. Uh, count the number of chirps in 15 seconds and then add the number 40. And within one degree, it will tell you how hot it is outside. The hotter it is, the higher the temperature it is, the more chirps there will be. And then use an actual thermometer and you can find out. So... So, so we're measuring all kinds of things. And the gospel talks about measuring too. Jesus is talking about what does it mean to follow me? What does it really mean for you to say, I want to follow you, Jesus? And he uses a story about a man building a, 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 a tower. But let's just say you, have a, you want a playground in your backyard, a treehouse in your backyard, okay? And so you, you and your parents, you just start building a treehouse but you find out that you only have enough, when you get there and get, get everything up, you only have enough for half the floor. So you don't have a full floor. You have to stop building because you didn't do all your homework and figure out how much wood you needed. And so what Jesus is trying to say to us, what? You could just make it smaller. <laughs> you could just make it smaller. That's true. You're right. You could. You're smart, Bowden. You're smart. But, but you want a big treehouse, don't you? Yeah. But, and so Jesus is saying... If you want to be my disciple, I want you to really think about what that means. 
It doesn't just mean saying, uh, I want to get baptized and then I'll just do whatever I want to do for the rest of my life. That's not what it means. Sometimes it can be very costful. And I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about some people in the world right now live in countries where it's illegal to be a Christian, but they decide to follow Jesus anyway, and they can be put to death, and people are put to death for being Christians. Thank God we're not being put to death here in this country for being Christians. But there are people somewhere in this world, probably even today, who might die. They're counting. They knew the cost of becoming a Christian. Other, other, in this country, it might be uh, uh, being a, a disciple of Jesus might be at work. And you say, and you talk about Christianity and the Bible and, and people, they just kind of snub you and go the other way. Or at school, the same thing. Because you're a Christian, they might snub you and go the other way. That's the cost of discipleship. Jesus says, look at that cost and make sure you want to follow me. He wants you to follow him. But he wants you to understand, us, all of us, to understand the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. Because it can be very costly. It can. All of our lives, not just right moment, not, not just this moment, but all the way until we get to heaven. All that, all that way. It can be very costly to be a disciple of Jesus. So pray about that. Think about that. What does that mean for me, really, to follow Jesus? And Lord... Can I be brave enough? And if I'm not brave enough, give me the grace to help me be the Christian you want me to be. Because God can do that. Okay? Why don't you grab a packet from Mr. Deer over here, your dad. Not your dad, your dad. And, um, and then you can go have a... Oh, it's me preaching, isn't it? I was going to go sit down. Mangy-looking guy who goes into a restaurant and he orders some food. And the waiter says, I don't think so. I don't think you can afford, I, think, I don't think you can pay for this food. And the guy says, well, you know, you're right. I don't have any money. But if I show you something you've never seen before, will you give me the food? And the waiter says, you got a deal. The guy reaches into his coat pocket, pulls out a hamster. And he puts the hamster on the counter, and it, the, the hamster runs to the end of the counter, down the counter, across the room, up the piano, jumps up onto the keyboard, and starts playing Gershwin songs. Hamster's really good. The waiter says, you're right, I've never seen anything like that before. That hamster is truly good on the piano. The guy receives the hamburger, eats it, downs it, and asks the waiter for another hamburger. Waiter says, mm -mm, money or another miracle. Guy reaches into his coat pocket again, pulls out a frog, puts the frog on the counter. The frog starts to sing. Marvelous voice, great pitch, a fine singer. Stranger from the other end of the counter runs over to the guy, offers him $300 for the frog. Guy says, it's a deal. He takes the $300, gives the stranger the frog, the stranger runs out of the restaurant. Waiter says to the guy, are you crazy? You sold a singing frog for $300? It must have been worth millions. The guy says, no, not so. The hamster, he's also a ventriloquist.
So this morning, I'd like to start by asking you a question. Really, why are you here today? I'd like to believe that it's because of the preaching, <laughs> but we've all been around long enough to know that that might not be the case. No, not the, uh, she said, oh, it is because of the joke. Oh, not because of the jokes. Okay. Probably lots of reasons why you are here this morning. But of all the possible reasons, let's assume just as a working hypothesis that you all are here because you really are trying to follow Jesus. You could have slept late, as Bowden said, lots of people do, or maybe it was Lauren. You could have gone to the lake or to the golf course in between the rain. But perhaps you are here in worship because you're trying in your own little corner of the world to follow Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And it's my job and the job of the clergy in this parish and other ministry leaders to help you do just that by providing uh, both the sacraments and um, the preaching of the gospel. But then we come to our gospel reading today and we see that it's not exactly a church growth kind of gospel text. I can imagine a search committee looking for a new rector. Uh, Pastor, tell us something of your understanding of church membership and he says something like, well, the first rule is this. You must hate your father and your mother. You must hate your wife and your children and your brothers and your sisters. Yes, you must hate even your own life. And then you must be prepared to die for a cause. As Jesus has said, anyone who is not prepared to give up everything cannot be a member, cannot be a disciple. And so they say to him, well, okay, thank you, Pastor. We'll talk to you another time. Is that the kind of church that would appeal to you? I think that most of us would have been drawn more to something like a Norman Rockwell painting, third grade Sunday school class full of little girls with blonde pigtails and little boys with slingshots in their back pockets, all of them bowing their heads in prayer, Families lined up on a comfortable pew in a sanctuary graced by the spectrum of light that filters through the stained glass windows. A graying, gentle pastor who is a friend to everyone and would rather die than ever hurt or offend anyone. That's what appeals to most people when it comes to church going. But then we hear Jesus say, unless we hate our families... Unless we carry our crosses, unless we give up all our possessions, we cannot be his disciples. So what are we dealing with here? How are we to understand what Jesus is saying in today's gospel reading? Well, the first thing we have to do is look at the context. We always look at the context. The passage starts out by saying large crowds, not just disciples, but large crowds were following Jesus on the way to Jerusalem, remember. This itinerant rabbi had become popular. Suddenly, like a rock star, the groupies, they just began to gather from everywhere. They'd heard about his preaching, his teaching, but most especially, they'd heard about his miracles. And they wanted to get close to this incredible character and experience this unusual energy that seems to surround him 
It almost gives you goosebumps just to think about it. But Jesus is less than encouraging here. He suggests that they go home, do some serious thinking about whether or not they are ready for this kind of commitment. And to tell you the truth, I suspect that many who heard him that day were as puzzled by what he said as are you and I this morning. What is all this about hating our parents and our children and yes, even our very own lives? You know, I think the best way to understand it is to realize that Jesus indeed was using a figure of speech that we don't use anymore. In Aramaic, the word we translate hate has nothing to do with emotion. It was a way of expressing priority. So if I say I love Bluebell ice cream and I hate Dryer's ice cream, I'm not really saying that I hate Dryer's ice cream. I'm just saying I like Bluebell ice cream better than Dryer's ice cream. That's my first choice. In Jesus' day, the way you stated a preference was by pairing two things and saying you love one and you hate the other. It had nothing to do with feelings. The issue here is priorities. And if you look at the other gospels, Mark's gospel, you'll see it phrased a little bit different way. They don't use the word hate. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He knows what lies ahead it's getting pretty serious. And with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, the gospel writer, St. Luke, knows even more what happened. When he wrote his gospel, Christians were already being persecuted for following Jesus. To even have a Christian in the family, as is the case in many homes today across the world, to even have a Christian in the family was dangerous for everyone because back then the Romans were, were quite thorough. If they found one believer in a household, they would arrest everybody. So it really was true that turning toward Jesus meant turning away from your family whether you wanted to or not. Folks, discipleship makes a difference. It makes a difference in the way we live. It makes a difference in the way we die. Several centuries ago in a mountain village in Europe, a very wealthy nobleman wondered what legacy he should leave to his townspeople. And he made a good decision. He decided to build them a church. No one was permitted to see the plans or inside of the church until it was finished. At its grand opening, the people gathered and marveled at the beauty of this new church Everything had been thought of and included. It was a masterpiece. But then someone said, wait a minute. Where are the lamps? It's, it's really quite dark in here. How will the church be lighted? And the nobleman pointed to some brackets on the walls around the church. And he gave each family a lamp, which they were to bring with them each time they came to worship. The nobleman said, each time you are here, the place where you are seated will be lighted. Each time you are not here, the place will be dark. And this is to remind you, he said, that whenever you fail to come to church, some part of God's house will be dark. It's a poignant story, isn't it? 
and it makes a very significant point about the importance of our commitment, our loyalty to Christ and to his church. Let me ask you this. What if every member of our church were to support the church in exactly the same way you do? What if every member of our church were to support the church in exactly the same way you do? What kind of church would we have? What if every single member served the church, attended the church, loved the church, shared the church, and gave to the church exactly as each of you do? What kind of church would we be? Now, of course, there are as many different answers to those questions as there are people in this congregation today. But just remember, Jesus said, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his father and his mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and his sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. An admirer, yeah. A disciple, no. Discipleship can cost all that we have, all that we love, all that we are. And so the danger of discipleship is this, it it changes us. It changes us. Being a disciple makes a difference in the way we live. You know, I couldn't help but think about a man named David Livingston. Some of you know that name. David Livingston was a brilliant scholar. He studied Greek. He studied theology. Went to Glasgow University. Graduated with a degree in medicine. He could have been anything he wanted to be. A professor, an author, a doctor. But God had saved him he realized and God had called him to the mission field and in the course of time God led him to Africa now at at the time that Livingston went to Africa no white man had ever entered the interior of Africa Livingston was going to a place deep in the darkest parts of Africa where no missionary had ever been, no gospel had ever been preached, no Christ had ever been shared, no salvation had ever been offered. The sacrifice he made was incredible. While out in the bush preaching the gospel one day, a huge lion leaped on him, clamped his teeth on his shoulder, and crushed it, leaving his left arm just totally useless. And one of his helpers killed the lion and saved him. And through that ordeal, Livingston was nursed back to health by a woman named Mary who eventually became his wife. And she went with him to Africa. And as the years passed, they had five children. And while crossing one of those vast plains in Africa, one of their children died. And in their grief, they concluded that it would be safer for his wife and the other four children to go back to Scotland. Livingston said that was the decision that was the most difficult one in his whole life. And so they left, the wife and the four children left, and they went home. And for five years, Livingston did not see the faces of his wife and his children. And he says the loneliness was just unbearable. Finally, the day came for Livingston to return home to his family. 
And when he got back to his house in Scotland, he found it empty. His family had just buried his father, a godly man whom Livingston loved more than life itself. His heart was broken. Another price had been paid. He and his family enjoyed some time together, but after a while he knew that he had to go back to Africa, so once again he parted company with his family. More years passed. and Finally, he received a letter that caused his heart to leap for joy. The children were now grown, and Mary was coming to Africa. For months, she traveled across the oceans, up steamy African streams and rivers, and finally she was in the arms of her husband. But she had barely arrived when she was struck down by an African fever. Dr. Livingston used every ounce of his medical skills to try to save her, but he couldn't. He buried his wife under a huge African tree. After having a short memorial service, he went back to his cottage and he just wept like a baby. He had made unbelievable sacrifices, endured unbelievable burdens, enough to crush a thousand men. But listen to what he wrote that very same day in his diary. My Jesus, my King, my life, my all. I again dedicate my whole self to thee. I shall place no value on anything I possess or on anything I do except in relation to the kingdom of Christ. Through it all, the Lord had sustained him. After 16 years in Africa, he was invited to speak at the University of Glasgow, where he had graduated many years before. And it was the custom of that day for undergraduates to heckle visiting speakers. And so they were ready for this preacher with their toy trumpets and their whistles and their rattles and all manner of noise makers. They even had pea shooters. And when Livingston was introduced, they were all ready to make fun of him, laugh at him, disrupt his speech, that is, until they saw him. Livingston came to the platform with the tread of a man who had already walked 11,000 miles. That left arm hung uselessly at his side. His body was emaciated. His skin was dark brown from the 16 years in the African sun. His face was wrinkled from the ravages of the several African fevers that had racked his body. He was half deaf from rheumatic fever. He was half blind from a branch that had slapped him in the eye. Before he could even begin to speak, the students did something unheard of. They put their noisemakers down and silently they all stood to their feet out of respect for this man of God because they knew that they were looking at the epitome of sacrifice. Here was a life that had been sacrificed totally for God and for fellow man. Throughout Livingston's, Livingston's entire speech, not one student sat down, not one student said a word. Was the sacrifice worth it? Well, consider this, 25 years after his death in 1900, there were 10 million Christians in Africa. 
Today, there are way more than 300 million Christians in Africa. But there's one other thing. When Livingston died, the Lord Jesus Christ greeted him, standing at the gates of heaven and said without a doubt, well done, my good and faithful servant. Because Jesus knows what we had better learn if we don't know it. Nothing is great, nothing great is ever done without sacrifice and without commitment. But any sacrifice for Jesus is always great. And so we come full circle. As we began, I asked, why are you here today? And I hope it's because you have your priorities straight. Or if they're not straight, at least you know that they're not, but you want them to be straight. And if so, then good. Because you are in the right place. The danger of discipleship is just this. It changes you. Being here in church today helps you to grow as a disciple and you are being changed. Suddenly we see the world through new eyes, the eyes of Jesus. We see needs and we want to feel those needs. We see hurts and we want to heal those hurts. The danger of discipleship, it just changes us. And it keeps on changing us, not just today, but each and every day for the rest of our lives. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.